We're now recording. Welcome to Yuma Club. Back from the break, I'm ready to go. And uh, we are studying the book of Habakkuk. Um, we uh, got through the first four verses last time, uh, kind of the introduction, to what's commonly called the opening complaint of the prophet. Um, and we're present- we were presented with a couple challenges already, if you remember, as far as uh, um, how to understand it, what is he referring to, and uh, those things will continue to be at issue for us. And remember, um, I think that we got into at least the first uh, verse 5, the next verse there. Uh, I want to start there again and just kind of back up a little, it refreshes us to what we've done. So let me read verse 5 and then we'll talk a little bit about it as well. Re'ubagoyim vehabitu vehitamhu temahu ki po'al po'el bimekem lo ta'aminu ki yesu par. Notice the imperative, look among the nations and look carefully. What's the uh, root of habitu? Navat, good. Hifil from Navat, so notice two imperatives there. Now, Hitamhu, the, uh, can anyone see the root of that one? Tama. Tama, Tama. And this is a Hitpa'el. All right, the uh, Hit, that, that first Tab has assimilated, and that's why you have that um, uh, Hirik, and then uh, followed by the Dagesh and the Tab. And now notice temahu, same root, call. Right? And they're both imperatives. So you have hitamhu, temahu. You ha- actually have the same phenomenon that happens in Isaiah chapter 29. Same um, two words here. And most grammarians suggest that what this, this functions to emphasize. All right? um, so you'll see translations something like, uh, be greatly astonished or something like that. Notice that you, what, what you'll usually find a translation in English is some kind of an adverb to emphasize that idea of astonishment. Be totally amazed or something like that. Um, all right. But notice that the big issue that we talked about last time with these imperatives is that they're plural. And remember, um, it is traditionally thought that this section of Habakkuk is a response to Habakkuk's complaint, see, from Yahweh. And so the whole chapter is normally thought to be a dialogue between Habakkuk and Yahweh. All right? um, the, the plurals then become a problem because um, you know, the question is, well, if he's talking to Habakkuk, why does he use the plurals? Well, one way to handle that... Um, once, a lot of commentaries just suggest, well, he's addressing his remarks not only to Habakkuk but to a wider audience, which is kind of a nice way to... Uh, but then the question is, why does he do it? And my suggestion, which I wanna, I'm going to have to back up as we go through the book, all right, is that this, one of the functions of this, what, what you'll see happening in the book is the humbling of Habakkuk. Okay, that's kind of my main thesis. And one of the reasons I'm suggesting that he does this is that it's kind of a power move. And remember I told you it's much like in a classroom if a student is uh, saying something like this to a teacher. It's not fair that we have a test on Chapter 14. You didn't adequately cover the material. We shouldn't have a test on Friday. And then the teacher goes, okay, class, on Friday we're going to have a test on Chapters 6 through 14, and you're expected to know everything. You see, notice that even though 
the teacher isn't addressing the student directly. What the teacher is doing is, is establishing his authority over a student. You know, we all have kind of situations like that. So that while it's not directly communicated to the student, the message is, hey, you have your place, I have mine, you better shut up and listen, see? I'm suggesting that that's what Yahweh's doing here. Now, you don't have to buy that or accept it. Just kind of follow along with me because what I want us to kind of trace is what happens to Habakkuk from the beginning to the end of the book, all right? Another way that this section is handled is to suggest that this is actually um, he, that, that what Habakkuk is doing here in verses 5 and following is um, relating a earlier prophecy. So that the complaint in verses 1 through 4 is a complaint against this prophecy. So uh, Michael Floyd has this argument. So that, so that in verses 5 through, uh, I can't remember, 5 through 12 or something like that, um, it's actually, he, he is quoting from an earlier prophecy. So that in chapter 1 it's not a dialogue at all. It all is Habakkuk's complaint, which is a very different way to read the chapter. All right. So we'll kind of wrestle with those issues as we're going along. All right. So then, the, and I'm not going to kind of keep talking about it, but just kind of let's go from there. Um, all right. Now, the, then the second line, ki poal poel. Again, notice Habakkuk, or in this section, um, you can already see how he likes repetition. For a work, so you could translate this, a work um, is working in your days. All right. Um, or you could translate it uh, in a more... No, notice what the uh, footnote has. Everybody see that uh, 5C? And this is what you see in most translations, which is why I'm pointing it out. The Septuagint has as ego, all right? also the Syriac. So they're suggesting that you insert ani, for I am working a work, or perhaps that you read F all rather than the participle, the first, that you read the call form. So that's why most translations will not show you that it, it, they're reading actually not the Masoretic text. They'll just translate, for I am working a work in your days. All right. Not will you believe, now notice this phrase, not will you believe ki yesu par. Now the question is, how does the low ta'aminu relate to the kiyasupar? Right? Um, and you'll see it translated many different ways. You would not believe it if it were told. So notice that it's very often thought to be a conditional clause. You would not believe it if it were told. Or you will not believe it when it is told. See, the issue is, what's the relationship between those two clauses? Um, you can also translate, you will not believe that it could be told. All right, so notice there's all different possibilities uh, for rendering this clause. And um, you'll see a lot of disagreement about that. Okay. Does anyone have, have any questions about verse 5? There's a lot of problems, not a lot of solutions, but that's okay. You, oh, anyone have any questions, thoughts about it? All right, good, let's go on to verse 6. Okay. 
for Hinani. Look, I am about to raise up Mekim. Notice it's a Hifil from Kum. Or I am raising up Et HaKastim, the Chaldeans. Hagoy, the nation, and now notice how the nation is modified. Hagoy Hamar, the nation, the Mar. The, yeah, the bitter one or the, I don't know if it, bitter would be, a, Marar means to be bitter, but notice here it doesn't mean, I don't think, well maybe it does, but probably doesn't mean that they're, quote, bitter in our sense. But, what? They have been, I the readers, yeah. I have this, um, readers, they suggest fierce as well. <laughs> okay, the fierce, Marar, yeah, sharp, yeah, yeah, because uh, it goes along with Nimhar, Notice that that's a nifal participle. Alright. Um, means to be quick or to hurry. Um, note, remember when you have passive forms, the nifals, the call passive participles, puals, very often they're used to modify their nouns, and that's what you have here. So, so hamar veha nimhar both modify, modify hagoy. The nation, the bitter, the Fierce and the Nimhar, the swift. All right, Ha Lake, the one which goes. That's a participle call. The one which goes from Halak um, on the Merchave, on the broad places of the earth. La Reshet to inherit. What's the root of La Reshet? Yarash. Very good. Call, <laughs> construct. Notice its purpose in order to inherit the Mishkanot. The uh, tents or the habitations, low, low. Very nice. Again, that's nice repetition. Not his, not to him. All right. Notice you have that. Here's my trivia question for the day. Notice you have that little dogish in the llama. Who would expect that? See, there's not very many of these, but they they occur. Six times. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Is that what it says there? Yep. Yep. Six times. Um, Especially in combination with low, low, when you have the C. Um, and I think uh, Gazanius has a note on that, that, that I, I suppose that that affects the way that the first low is pronounced, that first law. I don't know. I think that's what it does, low, low. And that's what it's doing there. All right? Like it's more emphatic, I don't think it makes it emphatic. It's just what they're trying to do is distinguish how it's pronounced. I think it's an aid to pronunciation. But I don't know what it would sound like differently. Okay, but you'll see them with the low-low combination. It, that, that low-low combination occurs a number of other times. Okay. Any questions on verse 6? Okay, verse 7. He's, notice he's still talking about the nation now. Ayom venorahu mimenu mishpato usaito yetze. Ayom is something like terrible. Ayom. Venorah. And awesome. What's the root of no ra? Yare, to be afraid of. And notice it is again a nifal participle, masculine, singular. Notice how it's used to modify a noun. So ayom, terrible, and no ra, awesome or fearful, is he. Mimenu, from him, mishpato, his judgment, u seito, and his the root behind Seito is nasa, to lift up. And so Seit is usually translated something like dignity or honor. So from him, his judgment and his dignity, Yetzeh, comes out. 
Now, what does that mean? Um, it is usually thought to mean that um, he doesn't rely on anyone else. His own, see, his mishpat, his judgment, his way of doing things, his custom, is kind of totally independent in himself. All right, so that, and, and the same thing with she'et, his dignity or his honor, his glory. Um, so notice that those suffixes, from himself, his own judgment and his own dignity comes out. That's how it's traditionally understood. All right, so that... Uh, He's making a case for the strength and independence and fierceness of the costume, the nation that is attacking or going to attack. Does that make sense? All right. Any questions about any of the forms there? Any comments? Okay, good. Uh, verse 8. Vekalu nimerim susav vekadu miz eve erev. Upashu parashav, uparashav merachok yavo yaufu kenesher chash leekol. All right, vekalu. Anyone see the root in there? Very good. Kalal. What does it mean? To be light. Yeah. It can also mean to curse, but here it means to be light. And notice that this is a double, you know, one of those double root letters, palal or kalal in this case. So this is a call. Vav plus perfect. Call Vav plus perfect. Um, and they are light. Minemerim. Uh, Namer is a leopard or something like that. Some, one of those animals. Now notice, you, what, notice that preceded is the min. All right, so whenever you have a word like they are light from leopards, think comparative, right? So they are light or swifter than leopards here comes the subject, Susav, his horses. All right. So his horses are swifter than Nemerim, than leopards. Vechadu, again notice you have one of those um, double verbs, Chadad, Chadad. Again it's a call. So notice the similarity between Kalu and Chadu in form. Okay, Kalal and Chadad. And um, they are chadad, again, something like, it means to be sharp, but here may be vicious or anxious or something like that. More anxious than the ze'eve, than wolves of the evening, than evening wolves, all right? Upashu um, parashav. Again, notice his repetition here. It's really interesting. Pashu uh, is from, it's a very rare word, so you don't have to put it on your vocab cards, as I always tell you. This is push, push. It's a hollow, and it means something like um, his his horses. Parashav, his horsemen are um, anxious. Would be the right word. It's uh, if you have a lot of if you know they have a lot of energy, they're straining at the reins. I don't know what the best word for that is. Um, yeah, something like that. Um, parashav, his horsemen are pashu, kind of eager. They're ready to go. See. And Parashav and his horsemen, Merachok from afar, Yavou, come. Yaufu, they fly. What's the root of Yaufu? Oof, to fly. See? So his horsemen from afar come, they fly. Kenesher, as an eagle, Chash, the root is Chush here, okay, um, and means to hasten, to hurry. As an eagle hastens Le'ekol, to eat. 
right? Or maybe, maybe, yeah, eagle's good enough. All right, so notice again the repetition. I just kind of love this. Upashu parasha parasha merachok yavo ufu keneshachash leekol. All right. Um, good. Any questions through verse 8? All right, verse 9. Pay attention to this form. Kulo lechamas yavo. Megamat penehem kadima. Vayasof kachol shavi. Okay, now notice this form. Kulo. What's weird about it? Anyone see? Okay, notice that that is a third masculine singular suffix at kulo. What's the normal way of writing a third masculine singular suffix? If you want to say his horse, it would be su, so, with a fav, right? Here you have kulo, um, and again, this you find this in quotes more archaic biblical Hebrew style. So you'll see this in a famous passage in Genesis 49 in which, remember when the blessing comes to Judah, um, the uh, uh, alternation is actually between the normal way of writing the suffix and this way of writing it. And Ian Young, for instance, suggests that it may be a dialectical, different way to pronounce it. I'm not so sure of that. But anyway, here you have that form. All of him, see, all of him, his totality, so I, I like that. His totality to violence, Yavo, or for violence comes, Yavo. Or maybe is coming for violence. All right, Megamat, this is a word no one knows what it means. <laughs> uh, it's in construct with Penehem. And it's, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it. The movement of their faces or the direction of their faces or the assembling of their faces, I don't know. There's all kinds of guesses on it. For our purposes, just say megamot of their faces. <laughs> Kadim. <laughs> to the east. So you have Kadim, which means east, and then the directional hey. Okay? Um, so the megamot of their faces is to the east. I mean, I puzzled over that for a long time when I was in grad school and everything, so I, I don't know. Okay? Uh, now notice again we've had, and I mentioned this earlier, this uh, kind of switching in tenses that you see. And so notice that previous to this, all right, if you just look back, beginning of verse 7, you have the imperfect, yetse, vav plus perfect in his description. Um, then you have the imperfect, verse 8 beginning of verse 9, all of a sudden you have a vav consecutive. All right, now it seems as if, if you understand the situation, that this is something that's going to happen in the future and near future. So you'll see a lot of translations, and he will gather the shavi captivity like the sand. All right? um, some, a lot of translations fudge on it and translate it as a simple present. He gathers. So, um, and that's possible to understand these verses as habitual or customary. In other words, this is a nation characterized by these kinds of things that they habitually do. Just beware when you're translating with one or the other, you're making a decision as to how you're understanding this. Is this a description of what, what the nation customarily does, habitually does, or is it a prediction or prophecy of what they're going to do, especially to Israel. Um, Again, in poetry at least, um, in the Psalms, for example, you see the switching a lot. 
And sometimes I think it doesn't have so much to do with semantics, but it is cluing you in for other things, like we're uh, ending one thought and starting another, or um, maybe there's some dialectical things that are going on here. So maybe that's the case here. He's kind of concluding a thought. But again, I don't know, and you'll see in the note there's some friction there because uh, what you would think or expect is what uh, the note suggests. Uh, um, notice it, it wants you to have a vav plus an imperfect uh, because the Septuagint has and he will gather captivity like sand. So the, see the Septuagint is reading this whether you know whether they it didn't have vowel points when the Septuagint was translating. Remember, it seems to be reading this as future. Well, but it's pointed. The Masoretes pointed it as a vowel consecutive. Vowel consecutive. Yeah. Notice that's how it is. Vowel. Yes. So, okay. right. Let's see. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, you just notice the difficulty there. Okay. Okay, any other questions or thoughts on verse 9? Yeah. Um, did you say what the Greek meant in the, uh, for megamath in the Septuagint? The oh, yes. Yeah, so, <coughs> the Septuagint has from anthistemi, um, and that means to resist. So opposing with their faces from, from opposite. So I don't know if that makes it much clearer. Um, yeah, and, and, so... I don't know what I can't remember what like Theodore and Theodore and some of those guys make of this line here, how they understand it. I can't remember. But yeah, the Septuagint, I, I don't know if they're having trouble with it too. <laughs> right? Uh, verse 10. Behu Bamelakim yit kalas veroznim mischak lo hulakol mitzar yischak va yitzbor afar va yil kedah. Now, he at Melachim, he at kings yit kalas, laughs. That's a hit pael from kalas, or mocks. He mocks by Melachim. Okay. And Rosnim, again, another word for rulers. And rulers are a mischak to him. And rulers are a joke to him. Sachak, remember, means to laugh or to play. A lot of times Hebrew forms nouns with the mem. Yeah, the mem, it means they're... It's a joke. See, or you could translate it maybe less pejoratively. Rulers are a plaything to him. All right? He, Yitzchak, laughs at every mibzar, at every fortress. So, he at every fortress, Yitzchak, laughs. Va, Yitzbor. And then he, Tzavar means to heap up. And then he heaps up dust. Va, Yilkada. And he captures it. Yilkada is um, from lakad, right, to capture. Uh, notice a couple things. Evidently, it's referring to the fact that, okay, when you have a city with a wall around it, um, you'll build up siege works, see, and that involves putting rocks and dirt and everything to it so you can climb the walls, see. So, you know, when he has an obstacle, he laughs and he heaps up dust and he captures it. Notice also the suffix on yilkada is a... Uh, feminine singular uh, even though Mivtsar is masculine usually there is at least one case in Daniel where it's feminine so it seems to be understanding it as feminine alright and uh, 10D notice again Qumran has the masculine ending 
and so does the Septuagint. It seems to read it as a masculine. All right. Um, we can do one more verse. Ashlaf rach va yavor v'ashem zukocho leloho. Then chalaf ruach. Then he passes. Notice how I'm going to translate it. Just then he passes like ruach, like wind. Right? Or he changes like wind by Yavor, and he passes through. Okay? Uh, maybe a little more strikingly. Then he passes wind, uh, and he crosses over. Okay? Ashamed. And he is ashamed. Ashamed. All right? Zu. Um, notice that this is, an, uh, this is kind of another interesting feature you see in more dialectical texts. Um, the zoo uses the relative. He who his power is as his God, Leloho. In other words, the way that, it, again, this is normally understood is that the Chaldean just comes in, does what he wants, laughs at every um, barrier to him, takes it down, and then he passes on to the next thing and he incurs guilt, shame. See, that's kind of where this text to this point is going. He, that one who his power is as his God. So in other words, he thinks that he's God himself, that he's of his own power. And again, it harkens back to how that previous line is understood. See, he's totally independent. He thinks that he's his own God. He is beholden to no one. So that's generally the thrust uh, through verse 11 there. Okay. All right, good. I've got to stop. There. Any questions? All right, thank you very much. We'll see you guys next week and we'll continue.